Let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. For those of you that are joining with us, we have been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for many months now, and we find ourselves at verse 29 of Matthew 20. And certainly, once again, it is my joy to be able to come before you and to proclaim the majesty and excellency of Christ, for indeed these are perilous days in which we live. We're seeing unprecedented apostasy spread through the world, certainly spread through our culture and even the church. And as a watchman on the wall, as the Lord would have me be, I must do all I can to warn you of the things that are out there that would bring destruction to your life and distort the gospel as we endeavor to battle for the truth. So this morning I will be speaking to you about the issue of spiritual sight and the terms of salvation. And we will glean much from this text that we have before us in Matthew 20. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 29. And as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. There is much confusion today when it comes to answering the question of how can one be saved? Many people don't really even understand what, they're, what they need to be saved from. And like the multitudes that were following Jesus, very few people today are seeking salvation from sin. They have no idea what sin really is and the consequences of sin, so therefore they're not looking for a Savior. Certainly they're not coming to Him to make a decisive commitment to deny themselves and to follow him. Most people have no idea of the depth of their depravity. They have no understanding of the holiness and therefore the justice of God. They have no grasp of really who God is. And so they see him, as many evangelists would have them see today, as nothing more than a cosmic genie that you learn how to manipulate to get goodies personal miracles, to learn how to get his attention so that we can experience more happiness, have better self-esteem, have more purpose in our life, be more successful, have more money, have all of our diseases healed, and on it goes. And of course, the whole seeker-sensitive movement that has absolutely swept the world has this as their philosophy, because after all, you have to keep the consumers coming. You have to keep them happy. 
And the thought is that you kind of bait them with all of these claims and people begin to claim promises God never made. And as they begin to fill up the churches, then you do the old bait and switch thing. You then switch them and give them a little gospel light so that maybe they'll accept Jesus into their heart. Whatever that means. We see, therefore, a newly invented Jesus these days and a newly invented gospel gospel, a reinvented gospel that basically says you come to Jesus so that he will satisfy me rather than me coming to him to glorify God. And certainly this newly invented Jesus that is designed to meet all of our needs is found primarily in the new apostate neo-evangelicalism that we see defined primarily in the seeker-sensitive movement, the megachurch movement, and certainly in the quasi-Christian shamanism that we see in the Word of Faith movement and the Pentecostal movement and so on. Well, today's text is a very straightforward and easy to understand text, but if we look at it more closely and we compare it to parallel passages in the Gospels, we will soon discover some amazing insights with respect to divine compassion as well as the terms of salvation. What are some of the essentials of salvation? That's why I've entitled my sermon to you this morning, Spiritual Sight and the Terms of Salvation. Because we want to answer this morning, what must really take place in the heart and the mind when somebody comes to Christ? Is salvation nothing more than just accepting a free gift? Is that really all it is? Is salvation nothing more than praying a sinner's prayer? Is there anything else required in this divine transaction? And if so, what? And we will use this text to explain some of those issues and to springboard into some other texts that will help us understand these very crucial issues with respect to salvation. Now, let me give you the context and the setting here. Jesus is now at the end of his earthly ministry. He's on his way now to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised again from the dead. These are his final days. He has ministered in Galilee, the region of his homeland, and has been faced with has faced enormous opposition. And then he has spread out a little bit in his ministry into the regions of uh, around Galilee into the Gentile areas. He's journeyed into Jerusalem and Judea, constantly teaching, debating with and exposing the scribes and the Pharisees, performing miracles wherever he goes. He then made a brief tour into Samaria and back into Galilee. And then he went to Perea, which is the east side of the Jordan. And today, as we look at this text, he has crossed back over the Jordan which, by the way, is north of the Dead Sea, about 15 miles from Jerusalem, but, a t but about 2,000 feet below Jerusalem because there is a tremendous climb going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. And that is going to be his final journey to Jerusalem. So, Jer so Jesus is now in this area of Jericho. And you need to picture something, folks, because this is very important. There are thousands of people following Jesus. He's not just walking along with just a handful of people and his disciples. There are hordes of people following him. 
Most of them are thrill seekers. They're wanting to see another miracle. They're wanting him to once again cast out more demons, to raise people from the dead. They want to see people being fed, certainly themselves being fed. They want to see all of these miracles. They want to see mutilated bodies somehow come to life and have new limbs. They want to see lepers healed and limbs literally appear on people's bodies. By the way, just prior to the text where we're at here today, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And that did not get just a small bit of attention. Plus, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They had never heard anything like his teaching. It was utterly compelling. He spoke with authority. He had absolutely impeccable logic. He had a consummate grasp of truth. He had a dexterity with the language that was unprecedented. They were amazed at what he said because, indeed, this was the infinite mind of God, full of truth and full of wisdom, the greatest communicator that had ever lived. But not only that, it was great entertainment to watch him spar with the Pharisees and the scribes and to watch him expose their hypocrisy and stick their tails between their legs and kind of run off from Jesus. So great multitudes following the Lord. In fact, in Luke 12, we read that it was an innumerable multitude, which is literally tens of thousands of people. That text says in, in Luke 12, 1, that they were literally trampling on one another. And certainly soon, these same people, these multitudes, would be shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save now, Son of David, Messiah, when he has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Which, by the way, will be the same crowd that would just a few days later demand his crucifixion, betraying the true nature of their so-called worship which, by the way, is indicative of so many people that claim to follow Christ. Once they discover who Jesus really is, they want nothing to do with him. Now, Jericho was an oasis in a desert wilderness. And it was also a Mecca for the blind. Because in Jericho, they had a special tree that grew in that region, a balsam bush. And they would use this balsam to make a special ointment for eyes. Ophthalmic disease was very common in that day. Most people had a condition or the people that had eye problems had a condition of ophthalmia, um, a, a severe form of conjunctivitis that would destroy the inner eye. It was highly contagious. Flies would light on that eye and would spread that to your eye when a fly would go to another person's eye and so on. And then it was aggravated by the, the constant sun. That region is very much like uh, the, the desert region of California, and then aggravated even more by the dust that constantly would hit you from the winds. Not only that, it was very common in childbirth for children to contract trachoma, which was a virulent form of conjunctivitis, and this infection would eventually blind the infant. And then you add to that, typical of all pagan societies, they were very... Immoral. They were sexually promiscuous, and so venereal disease was quite prominent, and many of the women were infected by various kinds of bacteria, especially gonorrhea and other septic conditions. And so the children would contract these 
particular bacteria when they were being born, and eventually they would become blind. Well, the people of that day had no understanding of the etiology of eye disease. They did not understand how to treat it. So most people thought that it was the result of sin. These people are blind because they are more wicked than others. You might remember in John 9, Jesus passed by a blind man and the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And of course, the Lord said, neither. And certainly there are times as we look at it throughout Scripture when Jesus or when I should say the triune God would judge people with blindness. It was the consequence for disobedience. We read about that in Deuteronomy 28. He blinded the the Syrians in Second Kings 6. Um, he blinded the homosexuals in, uh, in Sodom, you will recall, in Genesis 19. He blinded Saul on the road to Damascus so he could really get his attention, so he could really see. And uh, there's even a temporary blindness right now of Israel, a spiritual blindness that we read about in 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 11. But what's most noteworthy, folks, is that all through Scripture, blindness is used to illustrate the condition of men's spiritual sight, their ability to see truth. And basically, they are blind. They cannot see it. In Ephesians 4.18, the Apostle Paul reminds us about unbelievers that their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And Jesus frequently used blindness to illustrate man's utter inability to see the light of truth. Jesus said in Matthew 6:22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the Apostle Paul reminds us of Satan's role in blinding the minds of the unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4. And certainly the vast majority of the world in Jesus' day and today, was and is completely blind to spiritual truth. And they love it that way because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And it was for this reason, therefore, that Jesus said in Luke 4.18 that he was sent to preach the gospel to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, the blind of that day were victims that were really banished to a life of isolation and poverty and suffering. They were the rejects of society because, again, many people, especially the Jews, believed that their blindness was a result of their sin. So, with many hundreds of blind beggars lining the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, hoping to get a handout, the sovereign Lord Jesus has now orchestrated the perfect scenario to demonstrate both his compassion as well as to help illustrate some of the terms of salvation that was so necessary for the self-absorbed disciples that were with him. Remember, they were still bickering. They were prejudiced. They lacked understanding. Now, to fully grasp this text and help you better understand this whole issue of spiritual sight and the terms of salvation, I give you just a three-word outline, three very crucial attitudes 
that will always accompany genuine conversion. Desperation, recognition, and submission. Real simple. Desperation, recognition, and submission. And certainly within these terms, you will see many other words that are important in salvation, such as faith and, and the issue of conversion and repentance and so on. First of all, I want you to notice the issue of desperation, because this is so crucial when we present the gospel and when we come to Christ. Verse 30, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 10, 46, that this uh, again, there was a great multitude. And it says that when when uh, the blind men heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and it speaks specifically of one of them, it says that he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. His name, by the way, was Bartimaeus. Mark gives us one of the men's names. And then he goes on to say in that text that many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I find it interesting with tens of thousands of people clamoring after Jesus and probably many other beggars lining the road. It's interesting to me that only two of these outcasts of society plead in desperation for not only physical healing, but as we will see, for spiritual healing as well. My friends, desperation is absolutely an essential ingredient when one comes to Christ. Again, what a picture of the first and foremost attitude necessary for spiritual sight. You will remember in Matthew 15, we studied the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, and, and she sought the Lord in humble persistence, saying the same thing, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. You will remember the, the, the tax gatherer in Luke 18, The text says that he was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast saying in desperation, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Friends, divine mercy is always rooted in desperation. This is the stuff of the prayer of the penitent, the cry of the contrite. And notice in verse 31, the multitude sternly told them to be quiet But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Beloved, again, God is merciful. But he will only save those who recognize they need saving. How obvious is that? This is the response that God demands from one who comes to him seeking his mercy. You see, we're not signing up for a free handout when we come to Christ. It's not some small matter. I mean, dear friends, when somebody really understands the gospel, they see the heinousness of their sin and the holiness of God, and they see the sword of divine justice looming over their head, and they, in desperation, run to the Savior and flee from His divine justice. And like the blind men begging for mercy, despite the self-centered crowd that was trying to silence them. So too, those who, by the power of regenerating grace, see the wretchedness of their sinful condition will stop at nothing and be silenced by no opposition when in their spiritual desperation they seek forgiveness of sin. In John 6:44, Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him 
And here, dear friends, we see once again the father drawing them. The term draw in the original language means to seize, to grab hold. It has the idea of a supernatural, irresistible compelling. Because, folks, when when the father suddenly activates that which was decreed in eternity past. And his Holy Spirit then breathes life into a spiritually dead corpse and grants sight to a sinner so that they can see God's holiness and their sinfulness. At that point, there is no force on earth that can stop a sinner who in desperation comes running to mercy. I want to digress for a moment to show you how subtly we have in our modern evangelical circles departed from the these very important essentials of salvation. As we think of gospel invitations, not only from a pulpit, but also in books and seminars and so on, I find it interesting that most all of them have taken their lead from Charles Finney, a New York lawyer turned evangelist back in the 1900s. And he was the one that developed this method of altar calls. Now, his theology was terribly warped. He believed that man was ultimately sovereign over salvation, not God, and that God was basically dependent upon man and preachers and other people to get people to make a decision for Christ. They, as most people of that ilk of theology, especially Arminian theology, do not believe that man's nature is fallen, only his will. And so there are certain things that we can do to activate that will in a mechanical way to get people to come to Christ. So what he created was a mechanical method to manipulate the human will. And he came up with what was called the anxious bench. And, of course, there was a a very important sequence in this. First, what you would need to do, and you will see this even to this day, you need to create a mood in the auditorium with music. Because once you get people to start feeling rather than thinking, emotions tend to bypass rational thought. And you can get people to do just about anything. Emotions always eclipse reasoning. And after you kind of get them softened up, then you offer them something easy. Get them to bow their heads, maybe raise their hand. And then you move from that sequence to getting them to walk the aisle. And in order to get people to feel comfortable with that, you get other people to do this. And by the way, in in evangelistic crusades, you will see this quite often. The vast majority of people that go forward are counselors. By the way, counselors from various different religions, including Roman Catholicism. And so... Since people are very much like sheep, we have a herding instinct. And when we see the rest of the herd going one way, we kind of get with the flow. And so people then finally are going forward to the anxious bench with the crowd, which makes it now real easy to believe. And then they're offered a very easy to believe prayer and understanding of the gospel. And you basically repeat a prayer and bam, you're in. Now, you've heard me preach before about easy believism and cheap grace. But, folks, this is a very, very dangerous thing. Now, yes, we are to give invitations. 
We are to plead with people to come to Christ. Paul said that we are to beg people to come to repentance. That is our gospel mandate. But folks, the issue is not that we should or shouldn't give invitations in various ways. Of course, we should. The real issue is how do we invite them? What are the terms of salvation? Is it really that simple? In The Purpose Driven Life, a book that is now one of the best-selling books in the history of the world, we find an invitation, and there the author invites people to, quote, quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. That's it. And then the pastor goes on to say, and I quote, if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations, he tells the reader. Welcome to the family of God. You are now ready to discover and start living God's purpose for your life. Folks, where's the desperation in any of that? Where's a brokenness of heart and a pleading for mercy, an understanding of God's holiness and our sin and the atoning work of the Savior? I find it fascinating that just before the event that we're looking at in Matthew 20, we can read in Luke 13 that an unnamed inquirer noticed all of these multitudes following Jesus. And it was obvious that this inquirer also noticed that none of them were really seeking him as Savior, but were following him for all of the wrong reasons. And therefore, in Luke 13:23, this person asked, Lord, are there just a few being saved? Well, that's a great question. Tens of thousands of people following the Lord, but all for the wrong reason. Are just a few being saved? I, I thought you were the Messiah. I, I, thought that, I thought that all of Israel was going to be saved. I, I thought that they were all going to see you for who you really are. And it's interesting that the Lord doesn't even answer that question because, folks, numbers are never the issue. He even ignored that very thing. Instead, here's what he said. Now, catch this. Strive to enter by the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Boy, what type of invitation is that? What type of answer is that? Lord, are there just a few being saved? Strive to enter by the narrow door, he says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Well, well wait a minute. I. I thought this deal was easy. I, I thought you just take the gift. I, I thought you just repeat the prayer. I, I, I mean, I've been told that you just quietly whisper the prayer that will change my eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. What's the striving stuff? By the way, the, the, the term strive in the original language is agonizomai. We get our word agonize from that. And it means to fight. It, it was literally used to describe engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat especially engaging in an athletic contest that requires great intensity and exhausting effort. I know many of you were probably saying, what's this fighting? What's this hand-to-hand -hand combat? And what's this, many, I tell you, will seek and not be able? I thought this deal was easy. No, friends, it is Satan who has widened the gate and given you a broad way that leads to destruction. That's the gate of easy believism and cheap grace. My friends, salvation is far more than just reaching out and accepting a gift. Just whispering a prayer. 
It has with it the idea of striving when you begin to fight against your own flesh. That rails against the whole notion of submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14 that we're to love Christ more than our families. Boy, now that adds new meaning to coming to Christ. That we're to be devoted to him, even if it costs us that treasured relationship. In that text, it says that we're to count the cost. And in Matthew 7, 13, the Lord said, enter through the narrow gate. Narrow means the constricted gate, the restrictive gate, the compressed gate. By the way, that that word is rooted in a word that means to groan. You see, friends, you don't enter through the gate of salvation with ease. What we see biblically is there will be intense pressure resulting from a conscious choice, a determined, purposeful decision that requires strenuous effort. Luke 16 and verse 16 tells us how, quote, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's the idea of vigorously and forcefully pressing your way into the kingdom. Folks, this is how Jesus invited people to salvation. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. You want to be saved? Great. Why don't you come forward and we've got to begin with understanding who Jesus is, what sin is, what the holiness of God is, and what self-denial is all about. To deny, in the original language, literally meant to refuse to associate with. You want to come to Jesus? You've got to renounce yourself. It literally has the idea of hating yourself, being repulsed by yourself, repulsed by your sin, repulsed by your lack of ability to give God glory. It's the end of you, not the beginning of you. And people will say, but wait a minute, I'm coming to Jesus to find fulfillment for my life. To find purpose for my life. To achieve my greatest potential. I've been told that I can discover the champion in me. That's why I'm here. I want Jesus to help me satisfy my goals and my longings and my ambitions. Friends, that's not why we come to Christ. And with that type of an attitude, you can better understand why in Matthew 7, the Lord said, many will, will, will call me Lord, but not be able to enter the kingdom. And that's why this is such a crucial issue that burns in my heart is I see so many thousands of people being deceived. Beloved, now do you begin to understand what striving is all about? I mean, first you have to find the true gospel. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter it by it. And as as I've told you before, whenever you see hordes of people running through some gate that says this way to heaven, rest assured that's the wide gate, the broad way. But he goes on to say, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And catch this. And few are those who find it. You see, friends, once you sort through all of the deceptions of who Jesus is and what salvation is and, 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 and why we even need to be saved. In other words, what's the true gospel? 
Once you find the true gospel, that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of the battle. Now you have to fight yourself. Now you have to understand the issue of striving. That's when the struggle really begins. You begin to deal with the issues of your own pride. It's hard to deny ourselves. It's hard to come to an understanding of what Jesus said. And he says, I want you to take up my cross daily and follow me. I want you to die to yourself daily. Oh, boy, that's that's tough to do. You see, friends, when we truly understand the gospel, we will see that we must desire forgiveness of sins and the glory of Christ more than anything else in life to the point where we are willing to die for him. Should he ask us to do that? And to die daily to our own needs and our own desires that he might have the preeminence. You see, this striving, this denying of self when we come to Christ in desperation is literally the idea that Christ reminds us of when he says, if you want to save your life, what, you, what must you be willing to do? You have to be willing to lose it. Boy, there's the battle. You see, you can think of it this way. If your flesh wins, you lose. But if your flesh loses, you win. If you want to save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. Now, folks, again, this doesn't sell well at all. That's why it's not preached. And that's why only a few are being saved. Now, please hear this. Hear this. Yes, absolutely. God is sovereign over salvation, but no one is saved apart from an act of the human will. And by God's grace, he can cause that to happen. Now, some will say, well, now, boy. Pastor, you've got to be careful here. This sounds like salvation by works. No, not at all. Folks, his gift of grace never acts independent of our will. This is why, again, he says, many will seek and not be able to enter through the narrow gate. Why? Because they refuse to repent. They refuse to submit to his lordship. They refuse to go to battle with their pride and their lusts and their self-will. Friends, Jesus came preaching repentance, a choice that you must make which is a desperate turning from sin and a turning to God. By the way, it's interesting that over the course of Jesus' ministry, it's estimated that maybe five, maybe even as much as 600 people ever really believed in him. After all of the compelling sermons, the miracles, all that he did, the greatest evangelist that ever walked on the face of the earth, of course, had Jesus understood the modern-day invitation system, and knew how to play on the emotions and help people repeat some sinner's prayer and offered them a much wider gate to get in and a cheaper grace and all these free goodies, all without repentance. He, too, could have had a mega church, couldn't he? And you know what? He would have never have needed to suffer and to die on the cross. Beloved, self-denial is to genuine saving faith what light is to the sun. You cannot, cannot have one without the other. You see, faith is born out of a longing to obey, and it will inevitably produce more of the same. A.W. Pink, great theologian. I've had many of you read some of his works. I think I've read all of them. I'm not sure, but probably. Great theologian at the turn of the century saw the dangers of this very issue this issue of easy believism and cheap grace, coming to Christ without any desperation, shall we say. 
And here's what he wrote in 1937. The terms of Christ's salvation are erroneously stated by the present day evangelist. With very rare exceptions, he tells his hearers that salvation is by grace and is received as a free gift. That Christ has done everything for the sinner and nothing remains but for him to believe, to trust in the infinite merits of his blood. And so widely does this conception now prevail in orthodox circles. So frequently has it been dinned in their ears. So deeply has it taken root in their minds that for one to now challenge it and denounce it as being so inadequate and one sided as to be deceptive and erroneous is for him to constantly court the stigma of being a heretic and being charged with dishonoring the finished work of Christ by inculcating salvation by works. Now he goes on to say, salvation is by grace, by grace alone. Nevertheless, divine grace is not exercised at the expense of holiness. It never compromises with sin. It is also true that salvation is a free gift, but an empty hand must receive it and not a hand which still tightly grasps the world. Something more than believing is necessary to salvation A heart that is steeled in rebellion against God cannot savingly believe. It must first be broken. Only those who are spiritually blind would declare that Christ will save any who desire, who despise his authority and refuse his yoke. Those preachers who tell sinners that they may be saved without forsaking their idols, without repenting, without surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, are as erroneous and dangerous as others who insist that salvation is by works and that heaven must be earned by our own efforts. End quote. So you want to be saved? Wonderful. We plead with you to be saved. So what must you do? Well, in desperation, you must find the narrow door of the gospel, understanding the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then deny yourself and strive against yourself as you force your way in. And God and His grace will save you. John the Baptist understood this issue, obviously, of striving. In his invitation in Luke 3, beginning in verse 3, there we read that he came preaching, quote, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism being an outward expression of an inward reality. And then it's interesting, he quoted Isaiah, and here's, here's what, uh, what he said. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And you say, well, what does this mean? Well, this is, again, the very issue of striving. You want to to prepare the way of the Lord? You want the Lord to save you? Then what must you do? First of all, listen to the desperate cry of the wilderness preacher. And then in equal desperation, make his path straight. What's what they would always do? They would clear the road for an approaching monarch. They would straighten it out, fill up all of the holes, get rid of all the debris so that he could come. And that's what we have to do even in our heart. Get rid of the debris in our life. Long to get rid of that stuff as we come to Christ. We're also to fill all the dark valleys of our mind with the light of truth. He talks about tearing down the high places, the high places of pride and and, and self-indulgence. Getting rid of all of the, the idols of the heart. 
longing to humble ourselves and worship him and him alone. We're to straighten out all the crooked, twisted, demented, self-serving, self-serving philosophies that that clutter our mind and to smooth out the potholes and the ruts of of life dominating sins that would impede the arrival of the king. By the way, we see the perfect blending of divine grace as well as our responsibility in Philippians 2. The end of verse 12, we're told to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, there's the believer's responsibility to continually work to bring something to fruition is the concept there. And then in verse 13, we see God's part. And there it says, for it is God who is at work with you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, friends, without any need to be manipulated or coerced in desperation, these blind men begged for undeserved mercy. Not only physically, but spiritually. And then we notice in verses 32 through 34, the compassion of our Lord who heard their cries. Indeed, he had ordained them. And he calls for them and heals them and saves them. Verse 32, and Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do? Again, it's interesting. Mark's gospel adds that someone said to them, take courage, arise. He is calling for you. And then it says, and Bartimaeus threw threw aside his cloak and, and he jumped up and he came to Jesus. Can you imagine that? By the way, you want to think about that. A cloak was a matter of life and death. Especially for a beggar. Because at night, you would die of hypothermia if you didn't have a cloak. <laughs> but he knows he's going to be healed. I mean, that's a man of faith, isn't it? He throws aside his cloak. I'm not going to need this. There is nothing more important than coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. Not to mention getting my eyes to a place where they can see. And besides, I'll be able to see it. I can come back and find it. And that's what he did. Verse 33, then they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened and moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Folks, what an amazing illustration of the compassion of Christ. But also another fascinating illustration of the terms of salvation. Now catch this. Because they saw the desperateness and the hopelessness of their condition. Not only of their physical condition with their eyes, but also of their soul. They placed their faith in the mercy of Christ alone. And he delivered them from their physical and, as we will see, their spiritual condition. So not only must we come in desperation, but also there must be this issue of recognition. Number two, we see this in verse 30 and verse 31. Notice what they said. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, folks, this was a title that the Jews knew belonged to only one person, and that was the Messiah. They recognized Jesus for who he really was, the Christ, the long awaited Messiah that would come from the offspring of David. In fact, a few days later, at what we would call Palm Sunday, at the triumphal entry, the crowds would shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, they also recognized him, or as we will see, they will recognize him, but they recognized him for the wrong reasons. They did not see him as a merciful savior from sin, but they saw him as the great deliverer from Roman oppression, the deliverer from poverty, from difficulty, from disease. Sound familiar? 
People are always wanting to reinvent Jesus to their own liking. But these men recognized him for the right reason. And the context would indicate that they sought Jesus not only for physical sight, but spiritual sight as well. Again, if I can give you some examples, this idea of recognition of who Jesus really is, is absolutely crucial for salvation. Often people describe their conversion in such a way that betrays their ignorance, not only of the gospel, but their lack of recognition of who Christ is. I took out a few of them from uh, from some of my files, some things that I keep over the many years of counseling. Here's one example of a person that described their conversion to me. And I quote, yes, I saw the light and God has shined on me ever since. What does that mean? And by the way, that person had no understanding of the gospel, no recognition of Christ. Certainly there was no desperation. Another one, quote, I've experienced the love of God in my heart since I was a teenager. And that was the end of their testimony of their conversion. Another one, I found Jesus on the road less traveled and he's been my companion ever since. You see, you see what I'm saying, friends? There's no recognition of who Christ is. Rick Warren, the pastor of um, the great Saddleback Church, the, uh, the, the writer of the Purpose Driven Life, commonly called now America's Pastor. Evidently the largest church in the United States right now. Here's what, what he had to say. And I quote, well, actually, my conversion was this. I was a lifeguard at this campground, and what really attracted me was not the Bible, but I just saw something different in people's lives at this camp. And I'm going, quote, they have something that I don't have, end quote. But I didn't know what it was. And I remember one time I went to my cabin and I got down on my knees and I prayed a prayer. And I didn't even know how to pray. And, and, and I just said, quote, God, if you're really God, I want to get to know you. I don't know if you're there or not, but if you're there, make yourself real to me. And Jesus Christ, I open up my life to you. He goes on to say, so I prayed this simple prayer. You know what happened? Nothing, (laughs) nothing, no thunder, no lightning, no angels came down wings, you know. But he went on to say, I look back now and that was the turning point of my life. And it really had a kind of delayed reaction and that. The more I understood the decision, the more excited I got about it, end quote. Well, folks, I can only hope and pray that since then he has come to more fully understand the gospel and the terms of salvation. But I would hasten to add that there is not one New Testament example of anyone coming to a saving knowledge of Christ apart from at least the basic understanding of the gospel essentials. Not one example of that. You've got to understand sin and the Savior and repentance I mean, at least the basics. He went on to describe his marketing and management guru, a guy by the name of Peter Drucker, Rick Warren's mentor. And here's how he described it. He said, I began to know him, referring to Peter Drucker. I began to go to him, I should say, for advice on how to lead something that's exploding in growth. He's been very helpful to me. He's a Christian, by the way. I asked him one time, quote, how and when did you step across the line in faith? 
Now, I find that a very interesting way of asking someone about their conversion. How and when did you step across the line in faith? And he said, quote, the day that I figured out what grace really means, I realized I was never going to get a better deal. So I accepted it, end quote. Friends, I can't imagine a greater trivialization of the miracle of the new birth. But friends, God's terms for salvation are radically different and only his terms are going to save. And we see these terms of salvation, certainly in these blind men who were desperate for mercy and recognized fully who Jesus was. And then finally, we see the issue of submission. And boy, this is this is the real heart of it all. This is what validates genuine saving faith. The Lord Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they what? They follow me. The end of verse 34, after Jesus restored their sight, the text says they followed him. You say, well, my goodness, there were all kinds of people following him. Yeah, but they were thrill seekers. Most of them were greedy self-worshippers, would-be politicians, positioning themselves to cash in on the kingdom. Of course, a lot of them were friends, if not scribes, friends of the scribes and Pharisees, if not scribes and Pharisees. The religious elite that were plotting to kill him. But not so with these two men. They denied themselves and followed him. In fact, in Luke's account, in Luke 18, 43, we see that Bartimaeus and presumably his friend not only followed him, but it says they were giving glory to God. Giving glory to God. Moreover, in Mark 10, 52, Jesus told them, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And it's very interesting as you study this. The terms made well comes from a Greek term sozo. And this term literally means to be saved or, or to be delivered or to be rescued from certain peril. Now, now, certainly this would include their deliverance or their rescue, their salvation from blindness. But friends, this term sozo is also the most common New Testament term used for salvation from sin. To be rescued or delivered from divine wrath through the saving grace and merit of Jesus Christ. So I would submit to you that these men were saved not only from physical blindness, but spiritual blindness as well. By the way, Mark goes on to say, and immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And the grammar there would indicate that this was a new behavior for him. Well, beloved, these are the terms of salvation that we first, in humble desperation, see our plight as sinners under the wrath of God. And then in desperation, we seek the mercy that only Jesus Christ can give. And then with a full recognition of who he is, we place our faith in the one and the only Savior, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, with joy-filled submission, we follow Him in faithful obedience. We gl- gladly give up our desires. We, we gladly deny ourselves. And we submit to the One who deserves our utmost, cultivating within our hearts an, an unwavering passion to exalt His name and to reflect His glory. And as a result, we, see, we, we receive blessings untold. Well, I want to close with an example that came to my mind, I was reminded uh, of a great hymnist 
of the 1800s who was also blind. Her name was Fanny Crosby. We've sung many of her hymns. And I find it interesting that though she was physically blind, she had 20-20 vision spiritually. I was reading how once a well-intentioned Scottish minister remarked to her, and I quote, I think it is a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you sight. To which she quickly rebuked, quote, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should have been born blind Absolutely stunned, he asked the obvious, why would you say that? And here's what she said. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. What a wonderful testimony. And then, of course, I was reminded of that great hymn that I've sung since I was a little boy. That she wrote, entitled, My Savior First of All. Let me just read you three of the lines in the chorus. Here's what she said in her blindness. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture, When I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye, how my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love and grace that prepare for me a mansion in the sky. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. And then you will recall the chorus. I shall know him. I shall know him. And redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel. Thank you for the power of your word. And thank you that even though there is a great striving that must take place when we squeeze through that narrow gate, we thank you that it can be done by the power of your spirit. We thank you that it's not left to us, left left up to us alone, because if it were, we would never enter. Lord, we thank you for your saving grace. And Lord, I pray that we will all, those of us who are united to you in faith, We'll re-examine our hearts and remember the commitment that we made when we first came to you. And Lord, I pray again for any that do not know you as Savior, especially those who have been deceived by so much of the cheap, superficial gospel that is so prevalent in our society today. Lord, I pray that they will see the truth of the gospel And again, by the power of your spirit, have their eyes open to the truth and confess their sin, repent of their sins. I pray that today will be the day that they will have spiritual sight 
and enjoy the marvelous transaction between God and man as they experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in the precious and the saving name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.